This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Welcome to part two of Romans chapter eight. Now, throughout this series, we have been talking about the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, how God is at work within us. We basically did a really basic outline of looking at the book. It's 16 chapters. That first four chapters lays out the expectation of what has happened in creation and what happened to the old creation in terms of the fall and, and the, all the fallout of the fall as it affects uh, the earth and all that is in it, uh, how it affects us specifically. But yet, even in the midst of that, there is also a sense in which we see God's good creation. We see the goodness of God, His kindness, His mercy at work in the world. And it paints a contrast between where we see sin and death at work in the world. And so we know from that general revelation of uh, creation that God is a good God and that there are things that ought to be but are not. Then that second uh, ha- uh, second. Uh, fourth of the book, chapters 5 through 8, explain what it means to be a new creation, specifically first in us, but also how God is renewing His creation. And so here, that's where we're going to center on today as we get to the apex. Here in chapter uh, 8, it is the epicenter of the letter that speaks of this heart cry of all of creation, of the entire cosmos, longing for the revelation of the sons of God, establishing what the new creation is, what it is to be like. And then chapters 9 through the first few verses of chapter 12, focusing in on that transformative process, how the Holy Spirit is working in us, in our situation, through the earth, through all of these things, to point us toward this uh, crescendo of, of the transformative power and the process that is at work within us. Last week, we focused in there in, chapter, in the beginning of chapter 8 on sonship. Now, if you were here with us, uh, you may remember, if you weren't here with us, I, I want to remind you uh, or, or explain to you that it's pointing to this contrast of what it's like to be ruled by our passions or to be ruled by the Spirit of God. And then we follow that up with our new identity in Christ as the sons of. And we talked about how this is not uh, tied to male or female, but it is tied to an understanding, a, a point of Roman law to be the son of in Roman law code was to establish someone through adoption to promote that person to the sole heir. So that person could be kin or it could be a complete stranger, but it promoted them to the front of the line to inherit and gave that person not only the sole right of inheritance, but also established in them a new identity. A new, they became an entirely new person. Even the crimes that were against them could, had to be wiped out that day that they had a brand new clean slate in Roman law. And so in addition to that uh, status, then we pointed out that Paul listed the benefits besides those wonderful things in verses 15 to 17. One of those benefits being that the promise that the Lord would never leave us or abandon us, that here in the midst of trial and hardship, that God would be with us. That promise also means though that he is saying that we will not escape 
the troubles and the hardships of this life. Instead, we see that as a son, looking at Jesus, the model of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, that he suffered and went through trial and hardship. And so like him, we are called into this place of where we depend on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, even as we go through the troubles and trials of this life, so that we are not uh, insulated from pain, not insulated from trials, not insulated from uh, tribulations, but instead that we have the empowering presence, the comfort of God that takes us with, goes through that with us, and the promise that those things, those trials, those difficulties, those circumstances cannot separate us from the love of God, that He will not turn His back on us, that He will not abandon us, that He is forever with us and strengthening us in the middle of that. And then... As a son of God, of course, that new identity means that we not only have the inheritance and the love of God and the fellowship with Him, but so much more, which leads us here into the middle of chapter 8, where we find ourselves today in verse 22. The fallout of the fall on creation, its impact, uh, and the transformation of creation, where our tendency is to limit the new birth only to our uh, to humanity, to our personal salvation, that there is so much more going on in the world that how the entire cosmos is echoing these messages, uh, that the entire cosmos, just as it declared in the beginning that God is good, it declares, all of creation is declaring that God is the redeemer of all things and bringing things together and working in the middle of, uh, of his creation to redeem it from sin and death his entire cosmos. With that said, let's get into Romans chapter 8. We're going to start right from the very beginning. Romans 8 verse 1. We want to make sure we keep our context. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Please follow along in whatever translation you have. If you're using a phone or a tablet, please do me a favor and the others around you of setting that to silent. And then let's dig in right here. Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. And we read these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has, not, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time or age, maybe in your translation, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God that, all, that God works all things for the good for those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknow, for, foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or disaster or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? 
For your sake we are being killed all day long, for we, regard, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So there in verse 22, we, uh, we pick up with that statement that all of creation is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. Now, there in that passage, uh, it literally says to us, uh, there in the original language, this idea that the entire cosmos, right, when it's talking about creation, it's not just simply talking about the earth, it means the entire cosmos, the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars, that all of creation, all of the cosmos is waiting expectantly to be liberated. Now, here the thing is, is in this passage, we have probably the, one of the most clear passages of eschatology in the entire Bible. When I'm talking about eschatology, I'm talking about that fancy word that we use to refer to the end of all things, the expectation of the new revelation of the, the new coming of the Lord when He comes in His final judgment, when all things are set right, when He is finally revealing all things. And in fact, when it says here that there is a, a hope and an expectation that they're waiting for, it literally uses the root word for which we get the word eschatology. In other words, there's this expectation there in the scripture of this great hope in which we are pressing into, that we are leaning into, and this is the single most clear verse in all of the New Testament that points to that time and that sense of expectation that God is coming back and that we are waiting as the sons of God and the whole earth and all of creation is longing for that day in which he will be revealed. There is a great hope that is encountered in here and that sense of expectation that is laid at the feet here, which funny enough is probably the most ignored verse when it comes to eschatology. Instead, we seem to prefer camping out on more ambiguous texts. We run over to 2 Thessalonians and spend a lot of energy talking about the lawless man and we're not, and, and you know, our multiple of opinions, whether that's talking about an eschatological event or if it was talking about something specific that happened to the people in Thessalonians. And there's great arguments to be made both ways. Like I said, it's somewhat ambiguous and we spend a lot of energy on that. And we talk about that as the Antichrist, although that word never appears there in the text and never does it imply that it is going to wait until the end of days. The other part of it is simply this, that we spend a lot of energy and, and all on another passage in Thessalonians talking about the rapture. And again, uh, we, uh, spend, we, we create deep theologies that are miles deep. Whole books have been written. We're talking about one verse. So we spend a lot of energy speculating rather than land on a clear and direct directive like this. 
here, this clear and direct passage, the only one in the original language that actually employs the word eschaton, is pointing to this final revelation of the kingdom and the expectation that God is at work in his world, not just in, uh, 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 in us individually, not just in our salvation, but that God is literally working through the entire cosmos to make a declaration and to reveal his heart and intent. Now, when we talk about that word eschatology, let me just be really clear that, because people all the time say, Pastor, do you believe we're living in the end times? My response is, absolutely. Ever since Jesus ascended to the heavens, it has been the end times. And can I tell you that in every generation, there has been an expectation, a sense of hope, right? Great eschaton, that sense that God is doing things in the earth and that all of these things are pointing to his ultimate return and the restoration of all things. So that in every generation, every church leader has pointed to the times, the troubles, the hardships, the societal breakdowns and said, look, the Lord is coming. And so we live in like this tension of that thing in which you and I have this eschatological hope. We have this end times hope. God is coming back and he is doing business and he is going to redeem all these things. He's going to restore things. He's going to make everything whole. We're longing for that. But yet we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. That where you and I live in a place where we see the now of the kingdom, when we see people get saved. We see the now of the kingdom when we pray for somebody and they're set free, delivered. At Jesus references when he said, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so there's this expectation that you and I have of that God is at work in his world, that he is healing and, and bringing people to wholeness. He's working in people's lives. He's transferring people from one kingdom to another. And so we have that now of the kingdom, but we also have the not yet of the kingdom. We see that tension when we see people in rebellion. We see that when people fall away who've been walking with the Lord for a long time and we go, what is going on in that person's life? I don't understand. This doesn't make sense to me. We see it whenever uh, our bodies break down, we suffer and we go through hardship and trial and difficulty and we realize that we are not exempt from those things. There is the now and there is the not yet of the kingdom. Ever present at work, you and I live in the end of days and we are waiting for that day. And just like every generation that went ahead, went ahead of us, we look around at the signs of the times and we go, there's a whole lot happening. It would be a good time for Jesus to come back now, right? Don't ever lose that hope. Don't ever apologize for that hope because he's saying that that is the normative thing. In fact, that the entire cosmos as well as all of us is crying out, longing for that day. It is normative. It is the expectation of the kingdom. We should have that expectation. In fact, the revelation of all of creation is speaking to that ends. Now, I often hear Christians talk about how they can't wait for heaven. Tired of physical struggles. Tired of the evil. Tired of emotional suffering. And if you've been around for the last, you know, two or three years, just plain tired. Watching things disintegrate in our society, watching the tension, listening to people, even believers fight among one another about the things that they're supposed to agree on and, and, uh, and, and 
being in difficult places, and then, of course, all the politics and everything else. And so you are likely exhausted in the middle of all of that. And I get that. But with that in mind, I want you to step back from our own personal experience of those things, the things that get us cranked up, the things that make us worry, the things that exhaust us, and I want you to look at the revelation of the cosmos, what it is saying to us. See, if you will remember, in Genesis chapter 3, there is recorded the consequences of the fall. And I want to point out to you that it is important that as we look at the whole issue of the fall, that neither the man nor the woman are cursed. Can I just point that out to you? Neither the man nor the woman. Now, I, you know, if you want to put your finger there, you want to bookmark it in your app or whatever, go ahead and do that. You, please don't go ahead and just scroll back there because I will lose you right there. You'll go back and you'll be like, oh, wow, that's... And, and you'll spend the whole morning there. Please don't take my word for it. I do want you to read that, but just not right this second, okay? Go ahead, check me out, make sure I'm telling you the truth. But I will point to you and say that the word cursed appears twice. And it's specific. The first thing that is cursed is the serpent. The woman is not cursed. Pain in childbirth and that whole tension that there is not, the, is not a curse. That's not, God does not curse the people. It is the fallout. In fact, in the Hebrew there, it gives the idea that the struggle between man and wife becomes the fallout more than anything and that, that the greatest pain of a woman in childbirth is that she's bringing a child into this world in its fallen condition and that she is also finds herself with the partner that's supposed to be building her up and they're building one another up, that they find themselves in a battle over control and over dominion and that dominion is constantly a problem in relationships and how we treat one another. There's a whole lot more in that. But that's a consequence. It is not a curse. When sin and death enters the world, there are consequences. Real consequences, right? People physically die. People spiritually die. And the whole earth is in travail. Like a woman who is in the process of giving birth. Now, if you've never been in a room when a woman was giving birth, let me point to you things like earthquakes, volcanoes, uh, tsunamis, and stuff like that huge global disasters, and I'm going to tell you, there's a good picture of what it's like <laughs> for the guys, uh, you know. Uh, women, I'm sure you will agree with me. There's great travail, right? And, and as you're bringing that child into the world, here's the other part. He says, so he curses the serpent, and the other thing he curses is he curses the earth. Romans chapter 8, him who put the earth into travail, not willing, the earth didn't go willing, the cosmos didn't go willingly, it was subjected by whom? By he 
Who subjected it? Who? The creator of all things subjected the earth so that it, it participates in this whole declaration to the cosmos. The cosmos itself is declaring to us, to the heavenlies, to the angels, to every spiritual being in the world. It is declaring that God is doing something in his world that goes right back to the promise he also made in Genesis 3 that he would send a child born of woman, not of man, seed of woman, not of man, who would bring rescue to these things. And so the whole world, the whole cosmos, waits with an eager, with an eschaton, with a sense of hope, with a longing for the revelation of the Son of God and the sons of God who are yet to be revealed, waiting for that day when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There is an eschaton, there is a great hope that is permeating through there. And he's saying, listen, all of creation is declaring this stuff. There is nothing in the entire universe that doesn't echo this call. So think about how sin and death affects the cosmos. Consider wars and the destruction caused by those wars. Think about the travail of the earth in the earthquakes, fires, volcanoes, tsunamis, hurricanes. Think about disease and pandemics, how those things affect the entire earth. Think about things like nuclear fallout that leaves a little patch of land in the Ukraine devastated for now going on 40 years and it's still too dangerous to live there. Think about the impact of other human activities even. I know we could debate things like whether about manufacturing, drilling, mining, etc. I'm not talking about the political stuff. I'm talking about the simple fact that God gave us a great commission in the opening chapters of Genesis that speak about our job, our first job was to tend to the creation, to take care of the garden. And that original commission was never rescinded. In fact, here's the thing is that one of the things that we see really uh, as the fallout that the earth is crying out because the earth and everything in the cosmos is fully aware, even if we've forgotten, what our original calling was as to have dominion over the earth and to care for it. We see the evidence in creation that creation is fully aware of our role because we watch somebody walk up five foot two, eyes of blue, and reaches out and tells a fish to jump out of the water with hand signals. And a great big killer whale snatches a fish out of her hand and then rolls over and lets her pet its belly. Like, that's not normal, is it? Or what about when we see someone uh, reach into a lion's mouth and stick their head in and, and the lion doesn't go chomp, chomp. Now, here's the truth. On occasion, it happens. Where they have mistreated the animal after having dominion over it, they have been abusive in their care for that animal and creation snaps back, as it were. Every time we see creation barking back, destruction, difficulty, attacks on human beings and their authority, like that is creation clapping back saying, hey, you're not doing the job. 
You have failed at your original commission. All of creation. Can I just point out to you, even recently, there's been all these videos on YouTube. See, I told you it was a time suck. There's all these videos on YouTube of people in nothing but a, you know, a pair of swim shorts or a bikini and a shark, a great white, comes charging at them and you watch that person stand their ground and they take and they shove that shark's nose down into the ground and push that shark and that shark retreats like a wounded puppy. Why would a great white shark, 16, 18 feet long, with a person that has nothing on them except a little mask and a little bubbler, why would it retreat? Because all of creation knows who we are, even if we don't. And all of creation is begging the question, why don't we care? So regardless of all the... I don't care where you fall on the spectrum of environmentalism. I, I don't, we're not talking about that. I'm saying in light of our original commission... All of creation is groaning, longing for the day when the sons of God will be revealed to take their rightful place and to do what is right and not only being healed ourselves. You want a new body? So does the earth. See, as we get older, we start to notice those things about how our bodies are getting older. I'm, I'm, like, I'm finding this out more and more. You know, uh, and you know, when I was younger, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. The older I get, it's making a lot of sense to me. So if you're like, you know, under 50 right now, and this makes no sense to you, trust me, you'll catch up. But the reality is, is not only when God talks about redeeming the entire creation, He's not just talking about you and I getting new bodies. It says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation chapter 21 where those two things come into collision with one another in that sense of that those worlds meld. And then we look at the different things that describe that new heaven and earth, uh, like in Isaiah chapter 11 and Isaiah chapter 65, of the lion and the lamb that lie down together, the bear and the cow that graze together, and the earth being full of the knowledge and the presence of God as the waters cover the sea. That picture of the new cosmos, of the new heavens and the new earth, is not of little, you know, fat babies sitting bare butt on a cloud playing a harp. That's not biblical. Instead, we have animals and the earth and seas and mountains and angels who we've never really seen before, although you've probably seen one, you just didn't know it. And there is this whole thing of it being renewed, and you and I, as Saints of God, as the called out, as the ones who have been uh, called into His presence, as the ones who are given dominion over the earth, participating in that. And so now all of the cosmos longs for us to do what is right, what is just, what is good. But the consequences of sin and death are real, aren't they? They're real on our physical bodies, they're real on our minds. They're really real on the earth. You know, um, you know, on one end of the spectrum, we have people like virtually worshiping the earth. And on the other end of the political spectrum, we have people virtually ignoring the earth. 
Can I tell you, neither one of those is a biblical position. Those are both the definition of sin. Either abandoning the role of caring for the earth in spite of God's command or worshiping idols. Take your pick. They're both sin. So if you want to know my political spectrum, I don't agree with either. Here's what I agree with, the biblical mandate to care. That's the biblical mandate, that we would engage, we should engage, and all of creation is longing for that day in which it will be fully redeemed. But in the meantime, what would be the, what would be the reason for ignoring that first commission? Well, because I'm forgiven? Boy, that could justify a whole lot of sinful behavior then, couldn't it? Or that I am being renewed and I begin to see a sense of responsibility and bringing glory and honor to God. Now, I can tell you, if, if you think that, you know, like your, your electric car is going to save the earth, I, I just got to tell you, no, it's called Jesus. Jesus is going to save the earth. But there is a reality that what we do and our behavior, when we say things foolishly like, it doesn't matter about what I do in my personal life, my sin doesn't affect anyone, I'm telling you that all of creation stands against you as a witness that that is a lie. All of creation, the entire cosmos is screaming out, this is the effects of sin and death. There is travail, there is war, there is destruction, there is angst, there is anger, there's politics and all kinds of BS in the world. As a direct result of sin, the whole creation longing for us to take our proper place. Now, that's just unpacking verse 22. So now we get to verse 23. Not only is the creation eagerly waiting for those who belong to Christ to be the... He says that those who are the first fruits of the Spirit of God. In other words, the people who are called uh, by God and filled with the Spirit of Christ. It says that our spirit craves this also. Just like the earth is clamoring for these things, if you have the Spirit of Christ, if you belong to Him, that you are also longing, you're yearning for that day in which He will come back, in which He will reveal Himself in those final of days. Now, as I said, a lot of people will talk about that kind of thing and say, well, yes, I am longing for that. I do want those things to come. But the reality is, is that we live in this tenuousness because of the now and the not yet, that oftentimes our allegiances are greatly divided. It's important that we not have divided allegiance. Let me talk to you a little bit about that divided allegiance thing. Uh, there's a guy that uh, is a famous speaker. If I mentioned his name, you would probably know who it is. You may have even heard this story, but I'm, I just choose not to uh, share it because he shared it in a positive, and I looked at it and thought, that's not good. He was talking about how he had gotten into a position that he was allowed to fly on an F-16. And so he was so excited, he got all prepped, got in the gear, got in the plane, the plane is taxiing, and he's thinking, I am going to go twice the speed of sound. This is the coolest thing ever. Anybody want to do that? 
There's one guy that's honest back here. All the other guys are going, well, yeah, but can I, we're supposed to be spiritual right now. So, um, so he's taxiing down, and, and all of a sudden, he looks up into the blue sky, the sunshine. He's thinking about that, and all of a sudden, he goes, don't you come back. Don't you dare. Not right now. I, get, I need 10 minutes. Really? Like the glory of God coming back and restoring the whole earth just can't compare to your 10-minute ride in the F-16? Really? That's what you want to change the glory of the immortal God for? See, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to ride on the F-16. I'm just like, but isn't it true that for a lot of us, that check in the heart that I just talked about spills into a number of other areas in which that we think about our kids or we think about our homes or we think about the things we want to do and everything else, and that there is a reality that for many of us, that we would rather not upset the apple cart. We would rather Jesus wait and let us get through this life and let us do all the things we want to do so that we can have a fulfilling life before we go and stand before the Father. That we are more attached to this life than we are to the next. And it shows the evidence not only is in all the earth crying out, but can I just tell you, listen, 97%, let that number sink in your head, all the recent studies, 97% of Christians have never, ever, ever shared their faith with a lost person. 97%. And why don't we do that? Well, I will say this, that probably that 3% that are sharing are people who have the gift of evangelism and they just, that fire is in their bones and they can't shut it up. I was talking with a brother about that the other day and I was like, no, I, 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 like, I, I bless that. I, I bless that gift. But what, what, what's driving the 97%? And we could say that I don't know enough or I haven't been taught some things and all, but, but can I just tell you that what the real attachment of the 97% is, because it is 97%, is that I am more worried about the things of this life than I am about what will happen to the other person in the next. So it's easier for me to be in a comfortable place. It's easier for me to do things so I don't upset the apple cart, don't lose my job, don't irritate anyone, don't upset the family, don't upset my friends. Don't up, and, and we constantly are putting the attachment to this life first. And what Paul is saying is that if you have the Spirit of Christ, there is a longing, there is a passion in us that calls out along with all of the creation, that sees the evidence of the way the world is, and it longs for that. But here's what happens. If you get more worried and more attached to the things of this life, we tell the Holy Spirit, shh, shh, shh. Not right now. Shh, not right now. Shh, it's, it's just not a good time. We'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Listen, not in a judgmental way. I just want you, because if there's 97%, that means look around the room, you're in really good company. People who love God 
but have gotten very comfortable with this life and felt free to shh the Holy Spirit long enough. That those stats are not just the newest stats. They have been the stats for decades. You don't end up with decades of those kinds of stats and it not be just true across the board that we have developed a love for this world, that we have silenced the spirit of God's groanings within us. Now, just for a, a side note here, because I, I know that some people like, have gotten deep in the weeds on that, that whole thing, and they go, well, isn't that like speaking in tongues or whatever when the groanings are too deep for words and everything? I, I believe in speaking in tongues uh, and, and so forth. I do not think that at all what that's talking about. Because not everybody has the gift of tongues, but everybody has the Spirit of Christ, and everybody is supposed to have those longings. And so when those longings get quiet, when those longings are silenced enough, it becomes really easy to ignore the problem. So I don't say this in a spirit of judgment, I'm saying that there is a deep cry that needs to be let loose within you. There is a deep cry of the Spirit of God within you that is going, that will, if you allow Him to, will push you beyond your boundaries, will drive you into places, will cause you to let go of the things of this earth, that they will seem strangely dim in the midst of who He is and what He's doing within you. You will have a groaning as the earth, that kind of travail, the kind of travail that causes volcanoes to erupt, the kind of travail that wipes out nations with a tsunami, that kind of power at work deep within us that pushes me beyond my boundaries, beyond my comfort, and says to me, they are dying without you opening your mouth. They are perishing in the way. How could you not? How could you not be disturbed deeply within you in groanings that go beyond words in travail for all the cosmos? longing for that day when the sons of God will be revealed. Well, I am out of time, so uh, we will pick up in verse 26 next week. Hopefully you will join us. But as I say that, like, uh, you know, there's a couple of things that I I feel are really strong this morning. Um, One is... You know, if you're here and that whole thing of travail is speaking to you right now, like just a quickening in your spirit that says, I, I, need, I need more of that quickening. I need the Holy Spirit to work in me, to bring me to that place where I am willing to be uncomfortable, where I will travail with the earth for the sake of the cosmos. I will travail with the entire cosmos in the hope of the glory of the revealing of God. I will travail for the sake of the lost and the perishing. I will press myself. I will push myself. I'll get myself trained if I actually don't have the experience or the knowledge, although my bet is you do. My bet is you do. You just don't want to get into the difficulty of the conversations. Because if you know Jesus for yourself, then you already know more than they do. 
But whatever the reason might be, maybe that if you're here this morning and uh, you're among the 97% and you say, gosh, I just wish that you know, God stir this up in me. Put this in my heart in this moment, in this hour of travail in the world. Like, God, stir that up in me. That might be you this morning. For others of you, there might be some here this morning, and uh, you know, as I was talking about creation care versus just environmental activism, like God dropped something in your heart. God just really spoke to you in that moment and said, you know, I, the, I, I, I feel some, res- some responsibility to be a better steward of the things that God has given me. Whether that's conducting yourself a little differently, organizing some things, just not being an extravagant consumer and being uh, one who gives back. Uh, uh, maybe it, it could be any number of things. Okay, we're not talking about po- politics. I'm not interested. I, I, I'm, I'm registered non-party. Okay, I don't care about your political party. I'm, my only interest is the kingdom of God. I want that to come not some political messiah. So you can be mad at me, but I, I'm, just, I'm just telling you, my loyalty is one place. There's only one loyalty. One. And he's king of kings and lord of lords of the entire cosmos. And so if I'm pursuing him, then, I, you know, I, yeah, I'll vote. But my, my expectations are there. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.